Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University, and in August I had the pleasure of attending the 2017 Eurocias Conference, which this year was held at Oxford. While there, Duncan McCargo, Professor of Political Science at the University of Leeds and President of Eurocias, was kind enough to take time out of the conference to sit down for the following conversation with the author of a book shortlisted for the Eurocias Social Science Book Prize. That author is Astrid Noren Nilsson, and the book is Cambodia's Second Kingdom, Nation, Imagination and Democracy, published in 2016 by the Cornell Southeast Asia Programme. Built as an exploration of the role of nationalist imaginings, discourses and narratives in Cambodia since the 1993 reintroduction of a multi-party democratic system, the book pays special attention to how competing nationalistic imaginings are a prominent part of contestation in the country's post-war reconstruction politics. These imaginings, the book's author argues, constitute resources on which parties draw to obtain popular support and win elections. In making her case, she draws on an impressive array of primary sources, including extensive interview data with members of Cambodia's political elite, as we'll now hear. I do hope you'll enjoy listening to Astrid Nora Nilsson in conversation with Duncan McCargo. So we're here to talk about this wonderful book, uh, Cambodia's Second Kingdom, Nation, Imagination and Democracy, which was shortlisted for the Eurocies Social Science Book Prize. And I guess the place to start, Astrid, I'd really like to know how you came to come up with the idea of writing this kind of book. I mean, this is a, it's a politics book, but it's, dare I say, a rather quirky politics book. Your approach to the study of Cambodian politics is, is not exactly mainstream. So where does this approach come from? Mm, actually, the, the project evolved over several years, and it changed quite substantially during that time. So initially, I was um, it's a little bit of a psychological project, an egoistic project in some sense. I wanted to, I was genuinely very interested in understanding the reasoning of Cambodian politicians, and I was interested in the, hearing about their life stories and conversing with them. And so it was not very clear where this was leading at the outset. My initial idea was to have 
have a, a little bit of a life stories project and see and connect that to issues of ideology and see how people change their perceptions over time and see sort of general movements from one sort of faction to another. But what, what happened when I, when I started having this conversation was that I saw that all these different political ideas and perceptions and imaginations were anchored in ideas of the nation, but not in sort of very, let's say, traditional ideas of nationalism, which particularly in Cambodia has been seen to be bound up with the political opposition and be confined to sort of anti-Vietnamese stance, but something very different, something something much broader, something much more pervasive, and that's what I ended up writing about. And what was your own sort of personal engagement with Cambodia? Had you been going to Cambodia for some time when um, you started yes, to think about um, this? Yeah, I guess um, when I started this project, it was my original my PhD thesis that I wrote at the University of Cambridge. I started my PhD in 2007, and my first trip to Cambodia was in 2000. So mm. I'd already been going for about seven years. I'd already studied Khmer. Uh, I could read and write Khmer recently well. I had lived in Cambodia for a few years, all in all. So I did have a very personal bond to Cambodia and a deep emotional affinity, actually, with Cambodia. So um, I hope that shines through to some extent in my work. Yes, no, your fascination with Cambodia is palpable throughout the book. There's no doubt about that at all. So what would you say is the main argument of the book? What if... People were going to come away from the book with just one or two takeaways, to use that rather troublesome term. What would those takeaways be? I'm trying to offer some kind of a reinterpretation that might be bold there, but a reinterpretation that's as bold as I get of the Cambodian era of multi party democracy which is the era from 1993 onwards. And that's why the title of the book is Cambodia Second Kingdom. Mm. So that's actually refers to the, the Kingdom of Cambodia, which is a state that was introduced in 1993. Uh, and I'm talking about the, this particular era of Cambodia's political history. So it's not uh, related. Now, the monarchy is a theme in the book, but I'm not really talking about the monarchy as such. So that's why the book is named as it is. And the, the key argument is that multi-party democracy has been defined by different political parties and different political figures and different political factions advancing competing ideas of what the Cambodian nation is, who is included in it, what are the contours, who are its members and consequently who who can represent this particular nation. And we have these competing ideas that do not acknowledge each other's legitimacy and that I see as a core of political contestation in Cambodia from 1993 up until 2013. Great, that's a fantastic summary of what your main argument is. I think that's extremely clear. Now, you mentioned something about sort of challenging existing views, and you do use this interesting French word on page 27. You talk about bouleversement, which I gather is a, an overturning of the apple cart, an, an upsetting of assumptions that were there in earlier studies. So with this project, you seem on some level to be trying to challenge dominant narratives about how Cambodian politics in the, the post-UNTAC, or as you call it, the, the PPA, as the post, post-Paris Agreement period has been understood. 
What is it that you're trying to overturn uh, with this idea of bouleversement? Yes, that um, particular word, which is due to me living in France when I wrote this book and finished the manuscript, I just couldn't find a synonym for it that seemed adequate. That actually referred to this tendency to equate nationalism in the context of Cambodia with an anti-Vietnamese kind of thought that belongs to the political opposition, in particular what I have termed the Democrats, so people who self-identify primarily as Democrats, so people associated at the moment with the CNRP, the mm. Cambodian National Rescue Party. So I think that's a very narrow understanding of nationalism in Cambodia, and that's what I turn against. So you're suggesting that a lot of the earlier literature is very reductionist in the way it understands what Cambodian nationalism is. It just reduces it to this, if you like, knee-jerk, anti-Vietnamese rhetoric that's popularly associated with a figure like Sam Rainsy and his repeated claims that the Cambodians are losing territory, the Vietnamese are coming in the night, shifting the border posts, this kind of... Discursive uh, critique, which you find in a lot of the literature, you, you're you're quite concerned that that's an inadequate way of understanding nationalism in the Cambodian context. Yes, exactly. And even if you only look at that, those particular politicians, there is this idea that anti-Vietnamese, well, you, you tend to brand it rhetoric. Uh, it's, a, it's seen as something that's just being used purely for mobilization of value. It's just a strategy. It's been treated as a strategy. And that's not only in the small literature on nationalism, it's generally in political analysis of, uh, of Cambodia. You see that every day in newspapers and so on. And I find that not very representative of um, the Cambodia segment. So I think that's very important to note, and that's what I also tried to tease out. I'm sure we'll get to that. But in my last chapter on the democratic opposition, I tried to show that the anti-Vietnamese element is not purely a mobilizational discourse, but it's part of a broader political and economic analysis. Okay. I guess what we have to try to explore as we go through talking about the chapters is how far you can convince people that this is really a, a new way of seeing things and it doesn't sort of actually just mm. mount to a piecing together of information or understandings that were already out there. Where you make your strongest claim to a new theoretical position is towards the end of your introductory chapter, you sort of lay out your stall with this notion of the unfinished imagined community. Mm. So you take Anderson's idea about imagined communities and you make a claim that in the Cambodian context, what you're dealing with is these alternative, unfinished understandings of, of what an imagined community is. So could you tell us something about yeah, what um, you really mean by an unfinished imagined Well, community? the notion of an unfinished imagined community is not something that I came up with myself. Mm. It's something that I appropriated from a journal article by Jose Itzikson and Matthias von Hau in the very different context of nationalism in Latin America. Right. Yes. And I just found that a useful notion. So I'm not trying to offer any completely new perspective on nationalism. I've just sort of mobilized different ways of challenging Benedict Anderson's framework that I build on, but to point it in different directions by building on different ideas advanced already by other persons. So take, taking up um, other authors who have questioned the homogenizing aspect of nationalism in particular. But I do think my contribution is applying this perspective to the Cambodian case. An argument that could come up is, you know, aren't all imagined communities inherently unfinished? All natural yes, projects absolutely. are inherently unfinished. Absolutely, and that's the argument, really. Yes. Of right. Yeah. So 
you really lay out in the subsequent chapters, you've got three main chapters of the book. Uh, if you like, there's one chapter about Hun Sen, CPP, the, the current uh, ruling party of Cambodia. You've got one chapter about Phan Sin Pek, Ranarit, the party that actually won the first post-untack election, but then lost the plot one way or another, failed to sustain itself and has essentially disappeared almost politically uh, over the intervening couple of decades. And then a final chapter on the opposition, particularly the figure of, of samurais in his various oppositional incarnations. How did you come up with this kind of structure? Actually, this structure ended up being like this because I wanted to make an argument about political competition in the multi-party democratic system. So actually, I, I ended up focusing on people who competed in elections. So originally, I also studied former Khmer Rouge communities mm -hmm. and asked them much the same questions. So that was fascinating work. I spent several months on the Thai-Cambodian border um, talking about questions of, of the nation, how to imagine political contests of the Cambodian nation with former Khmer Rouge and their family members. But in the end, I decided to cut that out of this particular book project. And uh, I published some of those results um, independently because it didn't, since the Khmer Rouge didn't compete in elections, not even in 1993, it didn't fit the, the theoretical argument I was to make. Yes, I did wonder about that. You, I, I noted that point that you, you said that you'd excluded the Khmer Rouge because mm -hmm. they didn't compete electorally. But then at different points uh, in the book, I mean, there's an explicit point where you're quoting Hun Sen saying, don't confuse what we're doing with what the Khmer Rouge did. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Sam Rainsey and the opposition saying, well, actually, come on, they're just the Khmer Rouge reinvented, repackaged in a different way. So the, the alternative ideological discourse, if you want to, to frame it in those mm. terms, of the Khmer Rouge is always mm. lurking in the background of your study, isn't mm. it? That's true. But I, I think that uh, the voices that I heard from, from the Khmer Rouge themselves are very marginalised. It, really, it wouldn't really be a dialogue, actually, with what people are saying at the national level that I represented in the book. It, was a, it, it did become a bit of a sidetrack, these conversations that I had with former Khmer Rouge. It was uh, remarkable how confined they were to their own internal debates within the former Khmer Rouge communities. But they could be said to be articulating... Uh, an unfinished imagined yes, community they, in they their are, ideological They are, for sure, yeah. I find I, I think it's an incredibly interesting question, and that's why. Actually, I did publish a, a paper. Uh, it's called Children of Former Khmer Rouge Cardas, and it was published in Peace Review yes. in 2011, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's about how former Khmer Rouge families today consider their own historical role for Cambodia. So that will be a very interesting piece to read in so conjunction can with, refer the, our with the book. To yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. Because there are moments when you're invoking this obviously much darker, alternative, mm. unfinished, imagined community of the, the Khmer Rouge because yeah. it's always there in the background of these three other constructions. Yeah. In, in some ways, each of the three other constructions exists in dialogue with in opposition dialogue to in, in uh, contradistinction to or something yes with their ideas of the Khmer Rouge but the yes. Khmer Rouge are not there to articulate their vision or to, they're not in the position to engage any kind of dialogue indeed that, no absolutely not absolutely yeah. not but in terms of of seeing the landscape so it's yeah. wonderful that other article is out there that people can go to to explore that in more detail so perhaps we should move on to to talking a bit about these chapters and I suppose for, for many readers, including me, the uh, chapter about Hansen and the 
How, I, how should we pronounce this correctly? Popcorn. Correct? Yes. Okay. <laughs> this uh, narrative about the guy who killed an unjust king in the 16th century, whom Hansen identifies with and puts up a load of statues of, and it turns out that when you look closely at the statues of this guy, their faces look very like Hansen. Uh, so, of course, there aren't any statues of Hansen, but there are all these statues of this historical figure who may or may not actually be some earlier incarnation of Hansen. Tell us something about what you were trying to, to do in that chapter. So this chapter is about how Hun Sen invokes a very familiar story to many Cambodians. And this is the story about a man in the 16th century who rose through his own prowess to topple the king at the time. And there are several of these in Cambodian history, but not that many. There was a man called Sapai in the 14th century, and there was that corn. And uh, some people say there's also Lonol in the 1970s who instituted the Khmer Republic. Now, the legend of Sarkorn is a legend that has been debated over the last decades, mm. and especially during the time of the Republic, it became a point of contention between people supporting the hereditary monarchy and people saying that, well, look, we actually have historical precedents mm -hmm. of capable people rising against the monarchy and assuming power. And so Hun Sen's appropriation of this story is the latest and most significant example of people engaging with this story. And what I argue in this chapter is that following how Hun Sen took power from the political realist faction in 1997 through the July 1997 events through which Ranarut, who was the first prime minister at the time, was toppled, that after that, Hun Sen has used the story to legitimate him taking power from royalists and he has used it to diminish also the power of the monarchy. What, of course, is always very difficult to establish with these kind of things. We know that Hun Sen is trying to make use of this legend and put up all these statues and so on. How much buy-in do you think he really has from the Cambodian population for this kind of idea? I think the question, that, that's the original question I set out to answer, to be honest, mm -hmm. in some respect. Uh, I think it's gone beyond that. It's not so much about whether people believe that Hun Sen is about that corn. It's the fact that that corn is being used as a stand-in to debate the nature of uh, living under Hun Sen and mm -hmm. the legitimacy of Hun Sen. And I guess that in itself is proof that this narrative is important to people. So I encountered in many different situations people offering their assessment on Hun Sen by offering the assessment on whether that corn was in, in fact justified in toppling the mm. king at the time. Yes. And so one example of this is the assistant producer on the original film set mm. that was going to do, make a film about that corn back in 2009-2010. And he actually spent a lot of time collecting historical uh, documents that he could find in various libraries around Phnom Penh on that corn that he thought would shows that corn in a particularly unfavorable light because that's what his way of interacting with what Hun Sen is like. So I think that that is interesting that the, the question has moved on is really about what that corn was like. It's not really about whether Hun Sen is that corn or not because he is already in a sense. I see. I mean, I think the paradox for many people uh, looking at this, and perhaps you can elucidate a bit further so, uh, so we get it more clearly, you know, you, you talk about this idea of the Nek Mien Bon, which sounds rather like, to me, the Thai Pumi Bon, yes, or somebody, exactly, somebody yeah. who ha is, is meritorious, but this 
this bun that the Pumi bun has is a revolutionary merit. Yes. It's, it's about charismatic authority to challenge those who are in power. It seems very paradoxical that Hunsen identifies with a figure who is rebellious. So how can somebody who is the prime minister of the country, who's effectively been running the country to a large extent since 1985, be a rebel? Actually, a bit counterintuitively, maybe then, it's not very paradoxical at all, because mm-hmm. Sun has really built his legitimacy from the beginning around this net to sue yes. narrative of being a struggler, a fighter, a person who first joined the Maquis, called for by Sihanouk at the time, mm-hmm. and who then turned against the Khmer Rouge and came back and with Vietnamese backing toppled the Khmer Rouge in 1979. So uh, his image has been revolutionary from the beginning and through the PRK that was also, of course, there was this revolutionary ideal. And so you can see this Nyak Mien Bon model as a continuation of that. But it seems paradoxical once somebody like Hans has reached the kind of position and the extraordinary power that he enjoys now that he's still able to deploy the rhetoric of being... A revolutionary. Do you think that's that's a persuasive and powerful rhetoric for a lot of people still? Yes, I guess. Yeah, he does. Uh, it's, it's an it's an interesting point that you make. Yeah, I guess he sort of turns the tables on the monarchy that has been marginalised ever since being reinstated uh, in 1993, and the political royalists who are also marginalised by him, even though they won the elections. He then toppled them essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he still uh, that he manages to to to, to say that uh, yeah, he's they are the the establishment still. Right, but as you go on to talk about in, in later chapters, what we've actually seen, ironically, is Hun Sen's capacity to co-opt, absorb, and appropriate many of the sort of symbols of legitimacy of the royalist establishment. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and the point also that I try to make is that he's not really claiming to be the king or anything like it. No. He's trying to substitute that for kingship. And so the Nyamian Bon imagery is an important part of that because uh, historically in Cambodia there is an overlap between the Nyamian Bon and this other figure, the Priyabatomik, or the just ruler, or the just king. So there is a potential overlap between kingship and this, you know, uh, revolutionary ideal. So there's there's already this pre-existing tension within historical Cambodian notions of leadership that he uses to his advantage to uproot the idea of inherited kingship. Okay, perhaps we can take a pause there, having discussed your main idea and perhaps the, the most exciting of the three chapters, and we'll continue to talk a bit about the other parties and the other political imaginaries uh, in a moment. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au as one word. Okay, so we've been talking about your book and the different political imaginaries or the unfinished imagined communities that you find in the conceptions of the various major political parties and actors of Cambodian politics in the period since 1993. Uh, And your next chapter then takes us into... It's a pretty lengthy chapter, the world of Funsenpec and the world of Prince Ranarit's conceptualizations of himself. Can you tell us a bit about what you're trying to lay out in that chapter in terms of uh, an unfinished imaginary? 
So essentially, that chapter ended up being about the difficulties of transferring legitimacy associated with the historical monarchy to a political party vehicle to function within the electoral framework. And I argue also that uh, this is bound up with transferring legitimacy from Sihanouk to onwards, really, and particularly to his son, uh, Prince Ranarot. And I use this to explain why we've seen this well, shocking in some ways, dwindling of importance of the royalists since 1993. I mean, in some respects, it is shocking that in 1993, the royalists actually won the yes. elections. And yeah. in 2013, they failed to get a single seat. Yes. So uh, something happened during those 20 years, and mm, that's what did. I'm trying to cover. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's particularly surprising, it could seem, uh, given that Sienna passed away in 2012, and he had this enormous outpouring of public grief. And just one year later, still, uh, Fulcipay fails to win uh, any votes. So why is that? Why is it that this still uh, popular love, really, for Sihanouk, I wouldn't say for the royal family, fails to translate into electoral support and into Mm. also support for the the monarchy that we have now? So what would your answer be to that uh, challenging question that you've just posed yourself? Yes, I build the answer around uh, four arguments, really. First, I look at the difficulty of reconciling this idea of royalty standing for something supernatural, something that uh, unites all with taking a political partisan stance. And the second part of the argument has to do with, in 1993, the fact that royalists had to give back meaning both to the uh, monarchy as an institution and also to political royalism, because I argue that Sihanouk had concentrated all legitimacy in himself And so what the the royalists did in response to that, I say, is uh, that they advanced this idea of embodiment, that, you know, that the monarchy still embodied the nation and also the political royalists did so. But this was not a very successful strategy because it it still located royal legitimacy, regal legitimacy in the body of Sihanouk in terms of the monarchy and in terms of political royalism. It was not very credible because Ranarut was just kept being challenged, especially by his father, Sihanouk. So his claim to um, embodying regal legitimacy in, in the context of party politics uh, was just not very convincing. Um, and then look at the d- different democratic discourses that were advanced by royalists. And I say that there was one strand of thought that was clearly associated with Prince Ranarut, in which he built on the ideas that were advanced by his father during the South Korean era. But the way that he advanced them in the 1990s and 2000 just didn't mean the same thing as it did in the 50s and 60s. And they actually weakened his faction and just uh, in the end, they just became this uh, attempt to justify cooperation, cooptation really by the CPP. Finally, I look at the attempt to turn royalism into something that was not embodied but into an ideology and I show that even this was uh, unsuccessful because it just made royalism susceptible to being hijacked by other uh, political projects. So I guess the conclusion of the chapter is really that you know it was an impossible situation for the royalists. They sort of tried almost everything and there was no strategy really that could be successful. Yes, I mean, you end the chapter by saying that Sihanouk's ideological legacies were hopeless, which is difficult to disagree. I suppose a more sceptical reader than myself might come back to you and say, 
well, wasn't Ranarid hopeless? I mean, can we really take some of these figures in Fonsimpec very seriously? It's possible to construct all kinds of imaginaries around them. How far are these imaginaries that they're attempting to create for the Cambodian nation, and how far are they imaginaries that we as political scientists, we'd like to, we'd like to see mm. political parties have ideologies and to be animated by great ideas that are opposed to the ideas of other social forces and the ruling party and so on. A critical reader could come along and say, well, this is wonderful, but isn't it all a kind of work of fiction? Because we can't really believe what Ranaritz says in his copious writings. Uh, the guy can't really be taken seriously. The Funsenpeck actually is itself hardly a genuine vehicle for articulating ideology, a more an extremely pragmatic, opportunistic alliance of people. So what I do in the chapter is not really that I try to pin down what Ranaritz was thinking in his heart of hearts, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm looking at how he's working with the sort of ideological resources that he chose to engage with mm -hmm. and how that played out. So I'm looking at how it, you know, I show how it became hopeless and the way that it was done, the context that was dominated by this particular political presence. So yes, it's possible that it could have played out differently under someone more able, but that's, um, that's beyond the scope of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show why it didn't work out with the people that were there and with the ideological resources that they were interested in, in engaging with. We always get to this question of sincerity, don't we, with, with political rhetoric of all kinds. I mean, what what degree of sincerity do you think Funsenbeck and people like Ranarit had when they, he in particular, talks about himself and the project of his, part, his various parties in rather grandiose terms? And yeah. you, you interviewed him, and that's something we could also uh, yeah. talk a bit about. What was yeah. it like to talk to these people, and, and how convinced? It's very easy to be convinced by people when you're in the room. Were you? Did you find him highly persuasive when you went back and went over your notes? Did you reflect on those conversations and see them differently? How, yeah. what, what kind of experience was that to, to meet these larger-than-life characters? No, the question of sincerity is there, and it's at the heart of things. But of course, when you write an academic book, you don't write, you don't try to to claim that uh, these people are thinking this and that. But mm -hmm. you know, I deal with that in different ways. In the Hunsen chapter, it's about discourse. In the other chapters, I speak more about strategy and so on. So I don't really make claims to what people really uh, were thinking. Of course that's something that I ask myself all the time when I meet people and it's important to make some kind of judgment on whether people are have some kind of uh, strong belief in a, in a particular argument or not but in terms of yeah these particular interviews I was particularly impressed by my meeting with Hunsen who you before you meet him, you uh, tend to think that his power is founded in the fear that he instills. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was very taken by his intelligence, which was clearly evident. I spoke to him for over three hours, yes. and uh, it was one of the most interesting encounters that I've ever had. And clearly a formidable intelligence at work in order to, to do what he's been able to do and to retain power in the way that he has. But again, some people would say... You know, the textbook for Hansen is Machiavelli. It's all about just holding on to power. We shouldn't really dignify this project with any great ideological baggage. So I'm positioning myself somewhere in between. I'm curious about sort of how people legitimize themselves, but also how people might plausibly conceal themselves. And I, in the book, I chose to comment on different aspects there, thereof. And 
but you broadly, if I may say so, you seem to sort of be ready to suspend your disbelief about people and to some extent try to enter empathetically into the imaginative worlds of your informants and uh, interview subjects. Yeah, well, I, I hope that I didn't exaggerate that too much because one of the main aims of the book was really to connect ideas, perceptions, beliefs, self-perceptions to political realities. That's something I want to do. I want to show how different beliefs, whether sincere or not, or just projected, mm-hmm. how, they co- how they play out in democratic politics and what consequences they have had on different political manoeuvrings and uh, policies even that have been made. Um, so um, I hope that's something that I also mm. managed to get across. So then we come to your final substantive chapter, and in some ways almost the, the most colourful and outrageous of all the many colourful and outrageous characters in Cambodian politics. Sam Rainsy is a, is a central figure in that. Again, you're trying to work out what kind of political imaginary someone like Sam Rainsy and the oppositional movement that he represents epitomises or reflects. How far could you find a coherent imaginary at the heart of the opposition project? Well, I think Sam Rainsy, to start with, is an incredibly complex character, maybe the most complex of all Cambodian leaders, and that's immediately evident. You don't even have to meet him to (laughs) to get at that. But after you've met him, it's been confirmed. Yes. (laughs) So that's one thing. And then uh, if you look at the people making up Cambodia's opposition, you also have sort of various lineages. So um, you have people coming out of the KPNLF, what became the BLDP, the Buddhist Liberal Democratic Party, the Samsan Party, and then the Human Rights Party. And so that's reasonably well-defined as a group. And then you had the people who started out with Fun Simpek, like Sam Raisi himself, and who then went on to wanting to reform Fun Simpek, and that's when the uh, Khmer Nation Party, as it was called first, was founded in 1995, and then moving on from that, the Sam Raisi Party. So you have a little bit different concerns between the two groups. And then, of course, as we know, they united in the Cambodian National Rescue Party in 2012. So yes, you do have different life stories and different perceptions sort of coming together in the opposition. I think that's important. I don't think that you really see... It's, it's, it's not too coherent, really. It's apart from it being an anti-project. Mm-hmm. So in, that's, that is the question with someone like Sam Rattis. It's very clear what he's against. He's against Hun Sen and the CPP. But is it possible to construct an imaginary that's a positive imaginary as opposed to a negative imaginary about the evils of the CPP and the evils of Vietnam and all these other kinds of things which you've obviously criticised as being a much too simplistic way of understanding what Sam Rans is doing. Yeah, and I think uh, what you find about uh, amongst these Democrats is a sort of genuine will to want to represent the Cambodian people but like what I talk about is also this alienation from popular aspirations that they're well aware of. So I found that very interesting conversations, uh, not primarily with Sam Rainsy himself, but with his wife, Shulung Samara, about how to construct a political agenda when you have been living abroad for decades and your life experiences are just so different and your socioeconomic status. Sam Rainsy and Samura both very well educated, worked in finance, always voted right wing in France, mm-hmm. like Samura yes. informed me, come back to Cambodia and try to represent the people and the only problem is they have absolutely no idea what the people actually want. So how to go about that and uh, what I argue is that that's how also how the opposition, uh, how the Khmer Nation party early on got this sort of 
character of protest because yes. they had to go down to the people, talk to them, listen to their protests, organize their protests to at all have a, a clue about what was going on in people's heads. And we noticed again in, in 2013, within a couple of days of the election, where the Cambodian National Rescue Party did surprisingly well, some Renzi's off back to the international community, flying back to Paris and New York to tell the world to come and rescue Cambodia from itself and intervene and sanction and so on, rather than staying on the ground and actually trying to get the best possible deal out of this, this setup. And that seems to be very, very typical of, of the problem. Yes, he seems does seem to be more comfortable flying around abroad and meeting diplomats, yes. I would say, right. <laughs> perhaps than engaging with it. But that might be a bit unfair to say that, because I, I, I do think he also thrives in his interactions locally, but I do think he needs both to feel well. He, he needs both to engage with his local constituents and to go back to his comfort zone, which is really the international arena and uh, his home in France. And is that an alternative imaginary that perhaps you didn't deal with in much detail? The transnational? Yes. Uh, it might be, yeah. <laughs> I think it would, it would require... You know, psychological assessment really, and I don't really want to go there because I, I, I don't think um, that that's where I, sh- where I should be making claims. And it's not just about Sam Ramsey, it's also about the diaspora, isn't it? And the, the yes, very no, vocal right, yeah, diasporas um, around the place in France, in the US in particular. No, you're right there. Yeah, there's. A, I'm sure. Yeah, there's another book to be written, I guess, about the imaginaries among the diaspora population, also how they influence Cambodian politics. That's very true. Yeah, that would feed into all the different political projects, but primarily the democratic opposition. So, do you think that these imaginaries are all impossible to complete? Uh, is there no real way forward for any of them? I mean, Hun Sen presumably would like to consolidate his imaginary so that it does, uh, at some point, become a. a not, if not an absolutely finished project, at least something that can be his legacy. I do think that this book couldn't have been written now. It was written at the right time, because I think it is a book that ends in 2013. And I think what people are thinking about now is just so different. And the debates that I describe have become historical over the last mm. few years. I completed this work in 2012 or so, and at the time it was the reality of the day. And as we speak now in August 2017, I yes. feel that it's become a book about political history, a particular phase in Cambodian political history that's come to a close. Because the debates that we see from 2013 onwards are just different. And I try to bridge that in the epilogue, and I try to trace how what I've identified played out in the 2013 elections. But I see, I think that now we have entered something quite new. Could you just explain how you think things have moved on since the work that you did for the book? Well, what I described were really sort of elite imaginations, and they were, it was clear that they were not connected to grassroots aspirations, grassroots so, so much. And there was a, I describe how the politicians try to bridge this in different ways, and sometimes they do not try to bridge it in different ways. You know, it's something very, uh, very elite nature. Whereas now, since 2013, you see a popular engagement that you just didn't have before. Mm-hmm. And so it's just not feasible for politicians to go on with their own thing. But we're going to see something that's much more anchored in social mobilization, in terms of imaginaries, in terms of any political project. There's, there, there, there has to be this connect with people that we, we didn't have before. Yes, I was surprised, though, still in the Commune Council elections in June to see the old rhetoric about January 1979 still there on the CPP post. 
posters, despite the fact that most of the voters they need to appeal to were not born in January 1979 mm. and really not interested in a lot of those historical claims. Mm. Do you think that any of these political parties have really come to terms with the reality of Cambodian society? There's also this incredible attachment to the idea that there are villages and there are people in the city mm. and a complete inability to grasp that huge swathes of the Cambodian population are moving between the urban and the rural and can't just be lumped into these simplistic old-fashioned categories. And it seemed that both the opposition and the CPP could not really get their heads around this, certainly in 2013, are still slowly coming to terms. Yeah, I think the, for the 7th of January rhetoric there, I think it's just something very stubborn. I don't think it's that static as uh, you would describe it. I think that End of 2018, we're going to see very clever uh, strategies of mobilizing youth. But what I think is that in terms of the CPP, for example, that there's going to be this emphasis again on sort of entertainment, on pomp, and just making it fashionable again to to be in favor of the CPP because that's what they don't have. It was fashionable to be with the CNRP. And I think you're going to have that. So you're going to have the concerts again. You're going to have the fun rallies. You're going to have all these celebrities rallying um, for the CPP, but not much beyond that in terms of appealing to the youth. To go back to your your terms uh, in this book, is that a new kind of imagined community um, that engages with these youth, or is that just a continuation of the project that Hansen and CPP has been working well, on in one way or another since 1985 or so? Yeah, maybe there would be this uh, sort of emphasis on uh, this sort of pop culture that you see in East Asia and sort of what my friend living in Cambodia calls pornography for the middle classes, mm-hmm. sort of you know, just showing this different kind of lifestyles that are offered to youth with uh, economic affluence and so on. So, and that might be a way for them also to connect with the masses, just to show, you know, to focus on consumption and the consumption that they, they enabled. But I don't think there would be much beyond that. So the book came out last year. It's uh, received some recognition now with the, the Eurocy's Social Science Prize shortlist. What have you been working on since? Where are you going next with your academic work on Cambodia or other things? Yes, I realised that this is, uh, to some extent, ended at 2013. So what I'm doing now is really trying to understand what's going on at the moment and what we can expect up until um, ahead of 2018. So I've been looking at the social mobilisation and I can't really let go of party politics either. So at the moment, I'm, try- I'm framing it as the interaction between social mobilization, party politics, and also charismatic individuals. And yes. in that, I'm looking particularly at the figure of Kaim Lee, who was assassinated mm. last year, and who's a really fascinating uh, example of something, I think, quite new that we see in Cambodian politics, who managed to galvanize people uh, around him and insert civil society logics, really, Uh, into eventually the Cambodian party political sphere. So there you can see that party politics still, you know, uh, plays a a prime role even for people coming coming out of a civil society background. So uh, that's something that I'm thinking a lot about at the moment. And I'm also looking at uh, the role of youth and youth mobilization ahead of 2018. And that's a project that I'm just starting. So I think that's going to be incredibly interesting. And let's see what um, imaginaries come out of that. Well, it's a fascinating book. It draws on some extraordinary interviews and research. And I think, despite your saying that uh, it's moving into a historical realm, it's still a historical realm that's incredibly close to the present. It's a book that anybody who wants to understand more about Cambodian politics would really need to read. So thank you very much for this really enlightening conversation, Astrid. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Astrid Naran Nilsson in conversation with Duncan McCargo about Cambodia's Second Kingdom. If you enjoyed this discussion, why not also check out some of the other great episodes on new books in Southeast Asian studies, like Sopal Ia talking about aid dependence in Cambodia, or Patrick Jory on Thailand's theory of monarchy. And don't forget that as well as downloading episodes from the website, you can subscribe to the channel through iTunes, as I do for other channels on the network, among which I follow new books in history and new books in critical theory. But if those aren't to your liking, there are dozens more channels to choose among and enjoy. Hey, thank God she get the tender boat.